Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. And we're going to read a few uh, short parables from Jesus today that, that go with the parable of the sower that we looked at last week. And remember, we talked about this parable of the sower. We might even think maybe more specifically is not so much a parable of the sower that sows seed, but, but the emphasis really is on the ears, the four different types of soil, which are really four different types of ears. And really, as we looked at it last week, it's really only two different types of hearing or ears, those that hear and understand and are fruitful, and those that do not hear and do not understand and are not fruitful. And on the heels of that, realizing that three out of four soils were unfruitful, Jesus, I think, is now wanting to encourage his disciples and encourage us. And he does that by reminding them and teaching them about this aspect of the kingdom of God. And really, this is the first time in the Gospel of Mark that we see some teaching from Jesus on this idea of the kingdom of God. Remember when we a few months ago when we started our journey through Mark in the first few verses in Mark chapter 1, Jesus said, repent and believe. The kingdom of God is at hand. And we talked a little bit about what the kingdom is and what Jesus meant by that. But now, from that point until now, we haven't heard much from Jesus about what the kingdom of God is and what it means. And so today we're going to look at a little bit of what the kingdom is. And I think in this, Jesus is wanting to encourage his disciples so why should we listen today? Why should we listen to Jesus' words? Why should you listen to me? Think about these verses that we're going to read today. Well, the kingdom of God is, is at its core a, a culture, a society, a people, a rule and reign of God. And so we all find ourselves as part of different organizations, different societies, different cultures. I mean, most of us in this room are probably American citizens. And that brings with it certain responsibilities and implications. Maybe whittling it down a little bit more, we're citizens of a particular county. I'm a citizen of Muskogee County. And that carries with it certain implications. And one of those came to me in the mail recently when they decided to reassess the tax situation on my property. And sure enough, it went up like taxes always seem to do. And so being a citizen of Muskogee County brought with it certain implications. I'm part of other groups as well. I'm part of several groups uh, that have to do with football teams that I am connected to in some way. One, the football team of my youth, the University of Southern California Trojans who lost to UCLA yesterday. And I'm part of the USC football fan club. And that brings with it certain implications when we lose to those punks from Westwood. I'm part of the Army football fan club, my alma mater. And, and that brings with it, thank you, <laughs> thank you whoever that was, that brings with it certain implications. It, it, it brings with it an email trying to put a sort of silver lining on our loss to Temple yesterday by the score of like 63 to 25, where some running back from Temple ran for 350 yards. I'm part of a couple Facebook groups. I, I am part of uh, the, uh, this is probably the one that I'm most proud of. I'm part of a closed group on Facebook, which is entitled the Close Friends 
of Paul Fincher. <laughs> and, and that brings with it a whole set of implications and, and responsibilities. But think about it now. Uh, and by the way, that's by invitation only. And I'm not, I'm not the creator of that group. But think about what we're dealing with now. We're, we're dealing with the words of a man who is claiming to be the king and the creator the sovereign ruler and savior of his people through which he is establishing a kingdom. If you believe that and you call yourself a Christian, the implications of what that kingdom is like and understanding what life in that kingdom is like is of, there's no, there's no thing of more importance. And if you don't yet fully believe that. Just the seriousness and the enormity of that claim should at least give you pause to consider the implications of that claim and what life is like and what that kingdom is like by this king, by the claim of this king Jesus. And so with that, let's look at Mark chapter 4 and Uh, starting in verse 21. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to read and stop and read and stop. But before I do that, I'm going to give you my outline. Four statements that I want us to consider about this life in this kingdom where Jesus is king, the kingdom of God. There's four things that I want us to consider today and then think about the implications of these four statements and four things that we're going to look at. First, we're going to look at, in this first little brief parable, is the mission of the kingdom of God. The mission of the kingdom. Secondly, we're going to look at our response to the kingdom of God. Thirdly, we're going to look at the power of the kingdom. And then finally, we're going to look at the certainty of the kingdom. Okay, so four things we're going to look at very quickly. The mission of the kingdom, our response to the kingdom, the power of the kingdom, and the certainty of the kingdom. And when we talk about kingdom, I don't want you to think about a specific place or a geographical area Remember, think as we looked about a few weeks ago or really a couple months ago when we were looking at Mark 1 that the kingdom of God is the rule and reign of King Jesus. And that rule and reign of Jesus has a few aspects to it. It's a particular reign that is involved in the salvation of a particular people, His people, all those who turn away from trusting in themselves and turn in faith and belief in who He is and what He has done on the cross to rescue them from the domain or the kingdom of this world. So His his rule and reign is a particular reign over His people who have turned and trusted in Him and who are His subjects and who He is their King. But it's also a sort of universal rule and reign whereby Jesus is not just particularly saving His people, but he is globally and universally restoring all things so that all sin and all rebellion and all injustice will finally and fully be vanquished and judged and dealt with and everything will finally and fully be restored to the glory and praise of his wonderful grace. So this is the kingdom of God that we'll be looking at today. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us and then we'll work our way through this text. Father, thank you for these words. Thank you for the great grace that you've shown us as a church in this very encouraging report from Reynolds about how you have in your kindness to us 
in spite of us, in our naivete, in our ignorance, in our, in our, in our sin. You have blessed this church for your glory. Lord, I pray now that as we draw our attention to your scriptures, especially as we approach these parables, I pray, Lord, that you would remind us that these are not mere moral teachings on how to live life better, but they are the very words of God. They are life. And they are the way through which you make yourself known as your Holy Spirit illuminates these words to our hearts. God, would you, in your kindness, encourage your people in this room, those that are believers, would you, Lord, would you, would you clarify and correct and teach and, and chisel off rough patches in our hearts so that we might understand you and know you better. And for, for those in this room that are not yet believers in Jesus, and Lord, in a crowd this size, certainly, I would imagine there are people here that are not yet trusting in you. Father, would you be so kind as to give them the gift of faith and repentance. Give them ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to believe so that they might turn away from trusting in themselves and turn in saving faith towards Jesus and what he has done on the cross for his people. Lord, would you do these things for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, first let's look at the mission of the kingdom. And let's read in verse 21 of Mark chapter 4. This is what Jesus says. Now remember, this is coming right on the heels of Jesus giving what might seem like a sort of discouraging prospect of the success of the gospel from the parable of the sowers. Remember, Jesus says there's four types of soil. There's the seed that's sown on the rocky on the path that the bird comes and snatches away and then there's the seed that falls on the rocky path that that just grows for a little while but then it gets scorched when tribulation when the sun hits it and then there's the seed the third type of soil that's sown on the 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 the, the ground that has the thorny weeds that grow up and choke it out the deceitfulness of lusts and worldly desires choke it out and then finally only one out of four is this good soil and so on the heels of that, the disciples might be a bit discouraged. And so he says in verse 21, these encouraging words. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed, and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest. Nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. So what is Jesus talking about here? I think he's talking about and wanting to give some encouragement about the mission of God. Now, when I was younger um, and when I was still kind of had a foot in the world and a foot moving towards, towards maybe becoming a Christian, I think at that time I thought I was a Christian, but I really wasn't. I used to be scared about this verse because I, I read this as a sort of you're eventually going to get exposed for your secret sin verse. Do, do some of you maybe think that where he says there in verse 22, for nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. And I kind of zeroed in. I like parachuted down in that verse and I thought, oh no, God's going to get me for that and eventually I'm going to be exposed. Now, now let me be clear. I think there's you know, certainly truth to the fact that God is utterly sovereign. And then if we're in some sort of unrepentant secret sin, that that 
that, that will eventually be made manifest either in this life or when we stand before Jesus and that judgment when, we, we, when everything is laid bare. But I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. I think that he's transitioning from what might be discouragement that only one out of four soils are, are fruitful to saying to the disciples that, listen, I am the lamp. In fact, in the original language that the Bible is written in, we, we're obviously reading it in English, and the English translators have translated verse 21 to say that a lamp is brought as if somebody is carrying the lamp. But in the original language, the, the sentence really reads that the lamp is the one actually doing the coming. It's bringing itself, and the lamp in this situation is Jesus himself, the word of God, the good news of the gospel, that he is, he is coming. And so lest the disciples, unless we think that Jesus' glory and Jesus' words and Jesus' mission is somehow obscured by the relative lack of success of the parable of the sower or by the indifference of the hearts and the ears of most of the people in the world, he's wanting to encourage us to say that, no, I am the light and eventually I will not be hidden and I am coming maybe slowly and we'll read about that in a minute, but, but I am coming and there is no secret. I, my, my heart and my desire is to completely expose the glory of my way and my kingdom and my name and my saving power. And so in this context, Jesus is saying that I am the light. He's saying that although fruitful hearing is a gift, and that's what we read last week, and Jesus will judge those that are unable to hear because of the hardness of their heart, he's not saying that his kingdom will be finally and utterly obscured from our sight. But he's actually saying the opposite, that it will be completely known. So I think this has implications about how we view our role as individual Christians and as a church. I think it has implications on how we live a life on mission. Do we realize that Jesus is telling us here, even though many people will not hear, that our, our mission, his mission, and it's our mission because it's his mission, is to be courageous and bold in the display of the lamp of his glory. There's this movie, and I mentioned it early on when we were just a few years old in the schoolhouse a couple years ago, uh, this movie called The Village. Now, this is going to be a spoiler alert here if you haven't seen that movie, but it's been out for about 10 years, and so if you haven't got around to seeing it, I don't feel like I'm spoiling the latest box office hit for you. But I, I have to admit that this movie absolutely fascinated me. Because in this movie, there's this, it starts off with this group of people who look like they're in colonial America sort of like a Puritan colony that seems to be coming from England and they're a, a very a Christian religious group of people and they're, they're this group of maybe 200 or 300 people that seem to have a colony maybe in Virginia or Pennsylvania and, and they are this village of people and they have very strict rules, they're very Christian people and they're, they're living life together and they eat all their meals together, they worship together, they're instructing their children and so you think that that's the time that we're in. We're maybe in the late 1700s and, but yet there's a twist on this movie because they're sort of surrounded by these woods and in these woods, this story goes that there's these monsters out in the woods. At least that's what the elders are telling the young people and the children that don't go into those woods because if you go into those woods, these creatures, 
these monsters that nobody's really seen, but maybe they've heard and seen glimpses of. There's these monsters that if you go into those woods, those monsters will surely destroy you. And so because there's clearly these monsters out in these woods, it keeps everybody in this open area, in this village, and this small little community of people kind of does life together. Well, what happens as the movie progresses is that one young man is, is injured in a fight with another young man, and he's stabbed. And he's starting to, he's starting to uh, his wound is starting to have an infection where they need some medicine. And so the elders of the church gather, and they get one one particular teenager because there's this cure that they know of in this other village, this other outskirts, but she has to go through those woods where these monsters are. And they choose, strangely, this one blind young girl. And they send her to go through the woods. And they send her, they say that they're sending her because she's blind. She, she won't be scared by these creatures and maybe she'll go. And so she goes through, you thinking, what's going on? She's going to get eaten. She's blind and she's going through these woods. And it shows this little journey where she goes through these woods and she gets to this wall and she climbs over this wall. And you think this whole time that you're in the 1700s and she falls over the wall and all of a sudden right next to her is this interstate and this car zooms by and all of a sudden it's modern times. And of course, she's blind and she can't see these things and she follows these instructions perfectly and she ends up going to like a forest ranger station where she finds this antibiotic that she actually brings back and then goes back to the village and then this, this young guy is healed by this penicillin. So what's the application? Well, the elders of this village were a group of people. We find out later that because of the ills of modern society, wanted to retreat from culture just all of the ills, sin, American culture. And so these modern group of people decided to retreat into this little village. And they created this scenario where anything out in the woods is evil and you'll be eaten. And so they had to send this blind girl so that she wouldn't see that there really are no monsters out there. And eventually she gets this medicine and brings it back. And friends, as I was watching that, I was thinking, wow, this is like the church so often. We create this sort of bunker mentality where we dig these foxholes and we, we create this sort of fear where if we go into the woods that, that somehow or another we're just sort of helpless little babes that are just going to get attacked by culture. But do you see that Jesus is actually saying the opposite? Do you see that the implications for us as individual Christians and as a church, he's saying that really he is the lamp and he's on a mission not to be scared of the darkness of the woods, not to be scared of the fruit, fruit, the relative lack of fruitfulness of the world, not to be discouraged by the three out of four ears that do not hear, but our mission with confidence and boldness and winsomeness and joy is to take the lamp of the glory of God, the word, the gospel, the message of the kingdom, into the dark woods because Jesus is guaranteeing us success. Do you see the implications of, of this? So how do we view people on the outside? How do we view the sinner? How do we view the person who, who we just know doesn't know Jesus? Do we view them as the world to be avoided or is the neighbor to be invited in so that they might hear the good news of Jesus? Listen to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians. He says in 2 Corinthians 4 verse, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14 through 17. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God. Listen to this now. 
We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And so what he's saying here is that evangelism is not so much the successful winning of a person to Jesus, but evangelism is just the proclamation, the taking of the lamp into the forest of this world. And it's God's business as to whether those who are being saved are saved by it or those who are being perished are perishing or perished by it. That's up to the sovereignty of God's good grace to give people ears to hear or not. But our responsibility is just to be this confident wisdom lamp of God into our workplaces and settings and cultures and families. Jesus is telling his disciples that he is on a mission and we as his people are to confidently be on that mission as well. Next, let's look at what our response to the kingdom should be. So let's read our response to the kingdom in verse 24. So he's saying that this kingdom is like a lamp. And now he says in verse 24, and he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now, again, I think there's some misunderstanding on this verse. This is not a verse primarily about money and giving. If you've tuned into TBN, maybe you've heard this verse taken out of context, that if you give, then God will give you back more. I, I don't think primarily that's what Jesus is saying here in the context of your financial giving. I think what he's saying here is that, again, he's talking about this seed that we are to hear The emphasis is on hearing. Pay attention to what you hear. And I think Jesus is saying to the fruitful soil, to his disciples, to the Christians, to put into practice what you hear. In other words, to the extent that we respond to what we hear and actually act on it, the more understanding we will get. The more understanding that we will get to then give away. But the one who does not hear and does not obey, even what little he has, will, he will eventually lose. All this is to say, friends, that we have a responsibility when we hear the words of God, the message of the kingdom, the good news of the gospel, is to not just hear it and receive it for our own personal salvation, but to then give it, give it away. And I, I think what Jesus is getting here is a key to life in this kingdom, that the the way of life in the kingdom is to, to be radically generous in the giving away of what we've been given by God. You, you ever watch, I haven't watched it, but I've seen descriptions of it and seen commercials for it, that, that sad TV show called Hoarders, where people just hoard stuff. Recently I had an uncle pass away, and I think he might have been a borderline hoarder. I barely knew this man, and it was sad to hear my, my brother and my father talk about having to go to his house and work through all of the things that he had just accumulated over the years and just stacked up in corners of his, of his house. And I think that there's a bent, there's a sort of 
cultural bent in American Christianity that views the gospel and Christianity through the lens of consumerism. Get, 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 get more understanding for yourself so that you can lead a better life, so that it can help you fight your sin personally and all of these things. And although there's an aspect to that, do you see that what Jesus is saying here is that for those who hear, there's this responsibility to then give away. And in fact, that's the principle. That's the principle of life in this kingdom. That's what Jesus does. Do you see that? That Jesus comes, the one who has all, and he gives it away, and then he saves his people so that he can give them, as Ephesians says, every spiritual blessing in Christ, not so that they can be hoarders and die with the most stuff or die with the most spiritual knowledge or die with an understanding of the intricacies of good doctrine, but so that they can die having given their lives away as reflections of his grace and radical generosity. But, but I look at my life and I, and I look at the lives of many American Christians so often and I'm, I'm, just, I'm just hoarding stuff and I'm stacking it up in my living room so that I can kind of gaze at the things that I've accumulated. Do you see the implication here that, that we must respond to the gospel and that when we as Christians respond to the gospel, when we hear it and then we use it, then that has radical implications for how we live. We should be, we should be just like radically, abundantly generous people who, whose hands are, are open and Jesus gives and he gives life and he gives understanding and we just, we just kind of want to be the person that gives it away. I think this has implications even for you if you're not a Christian that even now, Jesus may be speaking to you his words, and you, you, must use, you must use that. You must act on that. You must respond to that. You must repent and believe. For right now, he's speaking to your heart to turn and trust in him. Do not harden your heart. Repentance and faith are a gift. You must, you must, you must act on that. You must believe in Jesus. You, you must, with the measure now that you're hearing, the, with the measure that you've heard the gospel, you must, you must respond. And you must believe in Jesus. And then you must live this life and kingdom, which is actually the more pleasurable way to live, to, to, give, to give our lives away for Jesus. Which then brings us to the third, the third thing I want us to see about the kingdom, which is the power of the kingdom. The power of the kingdom. Let's read in verse 26. I love this part here. This is so clear about the gradual humble, yet powerful nature of the seed, the kingdom of God. Listen to verse 26. And he said, the kingdom of God is as, as, is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself. First, the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So I think Jesus is saying here clearly that the growth, the effectiveness, the power of the seed of, which is the word of God, the gospel, is clear. But isn't it so often hard to see that? I mean, think about just how our lives work with Jesus and think about the effectiveness of just the church and the gospel and the kingdom of God, isn't it, at least from our perception, slow and gradual? And it's mysterious and hard to figure out. 
But, but Jesus is saying that as, as slow and maybe obscured and as hard to figure it out is that this farmer, all he does, I mean, this farmer just seems like this, the, the, he doesn't do anything. He just scatters seed and then he goes to bed. And, and, and sure, rain may fall and there may be nutrients in the soil, but there's something in that seed. There's, there's power in this seed that the farmer has nothing to do with that then causes itself to grow and produce. There's this, there's this power that comes. Martin Luther was uh, the great reformer, one of my heroes. And he, uh, in October, October 31st of, I think it was the year 1517, he was a Catholic monk at the time, studying to be a priest. And he started to read the letter to the Romans and started to see this beautiful doctrine of the power of the word of God and that we are justified by nothing other than faith in Jesus' finished work on the cross. And so he wrote 95 statements, what we call theses, against the, the Catholic Church and their very poor understanding of salvation. And he nailed it to the chapel door at Wittenberg. And then for the remaining years of his life, he just preached and taught and wrote sermons and teachings about this gospel that he had rediscovered. And this is what, I love this quote, this is what Martin Luther said um, in, his, in, his, uh, in his writings about how the word of God has this inherent power. He says, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept... Or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends, Philip and Amsdorf. The word of God so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. Now listen to this. I did nothing. The word of God did everything. And so Martin Luther is saying, I was just like that sort of ignorant, impotent, helpless farmer. I just, I just threw out seed. And the seed, which is the word of God, the gospel of the kingdom, was in itself so powerful that it worked gradually over the course of time and tore down the greatest empire of that time, the Roman Empire. And even in our lives, friends, do you see the power? Do you, I want to arouse in you a confidence in the word of God for your own lives to know and to impress upon you the importance of the understanding the power of the word of God when, when this word hits our hearts, that it, it has this sort of inherent gradual, mysterious power that when it takes root, nothing can stop its advance. And we do have, as we mentioned just before, this responsibility to, to put ourselves in the place where we receive this, this word, this power. I think of it as kind of like putting yourself underneath a faucet. Jennifer was, had a meeting or something this week, and so um, I had to give the two little ones in our house a bath, which is always sketchy and uh, so I think personally just from logic that it makes a little bit of sense if you just trust dad when you and your little brother are sitting in the tub and we've got the you know we went through the whole field about the appropriate where mommy lets the water get to what level and all that kind of stuff and I didn't I didn't do it right um, but I was thinking that it would be a lot easier if you just kind of lean back. Let's get your hair wet. You know, you've played enough. 
You, you know, your fingers are starting to look like little shriveled up raisins. Just lean back and, and let me turn the water back on, which I realize will take us about 10 minutes because I get, I get it to the exact right temperature. And let, just kind of let the water just sort of really get your hair wet. And then we'll be sure that it gets thoroughly wet. And, and then I can wash your hair and then we'll rinse it the same way. <laughs> the best laid plans of men. That, that didn't quite work out in the logic of my seven and five-year-old. But do you, do you see that if it, there's this power in the faucet of the Word of God? Like if we will, if we will just lean back in it and, and just let this seed hit us that, that, that without any effort, like we don't have to knead our fingers through it, right? We don't have to scoop up little buckets. We don't have to work. We just, we just lean back under the, the faucet of God's grace and the power of his word. And, and we, regardless of whether we want to or not, regardless of whether we are going through periods of obedience or disobedience, regardless of how we feel at the moment, regardless of whether or not everybody in the room likes us or whether we were greedy, when we put ourselves underneath this faucet, this irresistible, this, this beautiful powerful faucet of the word of God, something guaranteed eventually happens. We get wet. We get wet with the word of God and whether we want to or not, we get washed. That's just what happens and I think the challenge here is, is to just get ourselves under the, the faucet of the word of God to come. Friends, that's why, that's why coming and, and hearing the word preached and being in a community group and studying the word and availing ourselves to the means of grace that God has given us are so important because we're like that ignorant farmer who really doesn't know how to plant but we throw seed on our hearts through God's Holy Spirit that empowers us and we put ourselves under the faucet of the powerful word of God and we get wet and we grow. And if you're not yet a believer, you, you, you just keep coming back, man. And you're wondering whether or not you even have faith to believe. Don't look to yourself to muster up faith to believe just put yourself under the faucet of God's word and you begin to grow. And then that leads us then to the certainty of the kingdom. Our final point. Let's look at verse 30. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. And so again, notice, notice the humility and from our perspective, even the slow, gradual nature of how the kingdom grows. Jesus is saying that the kingdom is like this very small, humble, obscure seed. Do you see all the parallels? I mean, Jesus is the king of creator of the universe, and he comes in all humility as a babe in a manger and plants himself in the world and allows himself to die so that the gospel might grow. I mean, there's all sorts of analogies and parables here. But do you see just this humility of the kingdom, how it comes so small and slow in our lives. I mean, the most important news comes even, even today in modern times. Just think about the humility of how God 
most ordinarily deems to bring people to faith through the humble preaching of God's word through broken servants whose life are still very much a pro- Think about even the way that you became a Christian. I mean, I heard the gospel in a very weak and meager form as an 18-year-old in my high school gymnasium through the lips of the former heavyweight champion of the world, a man named Ernie Shavers, who was boxer-turned-evangelist. And he was preaching, albeit, I think, a a pretty weak gospel, uh, not a very good understanding, I think, of the depths of the gospel, but he was preaching that I needed to turn from my sin, and he was preaching it through really punch drunk words. I mean, this is a man who had been hit in the head by Muhammad Ali and George Foreman for most of his adult life, and he had slurred speech, but he, but he loved Jesus. And even in his meager, feeble presentation of the gospel through this broken servant, God communicated the power humbly through this tiny little seed, this, as Spurgeon wrote, and we read last week, through this slender wire through all of my sin and all of my confusion and all of my pride and all of my arrogance and all of my sin at that time as an 18 year old through this most slender of wires the powerful mustard seed of the gospel came and took root in my life friends and do you see how over and over and over again this humility but this powerful certain kingdom comes through slender wires and hits fertile soil and grows Friends, what should that do in us? Well, that should produce a humble confidence in us. God is glorified through humility. He's glorified through this slow process of growth. And he's glorified through these tiny, humble, little mustard seeds of truth that contain the power of life, the words of the gospel that hit our hearts and grow. I think of when I was a boy, a little kid, um, we would, I've told this story many times before, I think, but it's such a vivid picture for me. My parents were both high school teachers, and so we didn't have a lot of vacation money, so we would do this little timeshare with a, friend, a family of ours that were friends, and they had seven kids, which meant we like, we'd, we'd rent out one timeshare condo in Orange County, San Clemente, up the coast of California, and my, our family of four and their family of seven, all like in one room. 11 people um, eating, you know, taco stands for lunch. And we'd go out to the beach every day for about a month. We'd just hang out on the beach. And my dad one day went out swimming out there on the coast and the beach in San Clemente, California. And uh, he was just waving to us from about, you know, 50 yards off the shore. And we were building our sandcastles, playing, doing our thing. Next time we looked up, Dad was waving to us again from about 100 yards out. And we went down to playing, and a few minutes later, we looked up at Dad, and Dad's wave is starting to, like, it's two hands now. And Dad is, Dad is waving to us from about 150 feet, or 150 meters out. And sure enough, before you know it, I mean, little kid, like, things are just happening in slow motion. All of a sudden, this helicopter comes, and it's got, like, a rope and an inner tube. And the, the helicopter hovers over my dad, and he grabs onto this inner tube, and it airlifts him back to the shore because my dad was caught up in this crazy little thing that we like to call the riptide. And even though he was swimming against it, there was, there, that was to no avail. He was slowly but surely being drugged out to sea by this undercurrent of the riptide that was pulling him out. 
Now, friends, I want you to see the certainty and the power of God's grace in our lives. That, that, that when, when God's grace gets a hold of us, when the seed plants in our lives through trial and tribulation and ups and downs and valleys and mountaintops and even my own sin, friends, I want you to get a taste and a longing for the powerful certainty of the kingdom of God in your own life personally if you're a Christian. And what it is, friends, it's like a riptide of God's grace that even when those times when you're swimming against it, it's pulling you deeper and deeper into God's way and in his kingdom. And so, so my thing is, and I wouldn't have told my dad this because he would have drowned, but just turn and swim with the riptide of God's grace. Like that's, that's the reminder, that's the thing that I want to impress on my own heart as I read this. And we read this in Romans chapter 8. Let me read Romans chapter 8 verse 29. One of the most beautiful verses in the whole Bible. Listen to Romans eight twenty-nine. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, friends, there's lots that we could unpack in, unpack in this verse, and today is not the time for it. There's much in this verse about the sovereignty of God and foreknowing a people and setting his love on them before the beginning of time to save a people in himself, and, and certainly that's something for us to consider. But, what I, but I, what I want us to focus and zero in on here is see that if you are a Christian, Regardless of what you believe about the sovereignty of God and predestination, I want you to to see that if you're a Christian, then God has predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. Right? Do you see that? So if you're a Christian, God has, here you are right now, and there's this time out in the future that God has set his sovereign power over you in your life to ensure that you will you will traverse this spectrum from where you are now until you are conformed to the image of his son. Do you see that? And so there's this power, there's this certainty, there's this irresistible tug of the riptide of God's grace that is by his loving power guaranteeing that if the seed of the kingdom hits your heart and you respond to it, that you are being transformed and conformed into the image of his grace. Friends, this has amazing power for us to resist sin. This has amazing power for us to produce a sort of humble confidence so that we can be freed up to grow in God and be confident that he whom we have believed in, we are persuaded that he is able to keep that which we have committed to him until that day. And it has this amazing power to to cause us to be on mission to cause us to respond to him by giving away our lives, to have great confidence in his power because we know that his kingdom is certain. And it has not only personal application, it has global application. As we think about the results of of an election in our country that some of you may be very discouraged about or some of you may be encouraged about, I don't know. And as we look at events in the Middle East, where it seems like we're on the brink of war between Israel and her neighbors, and all the implications of those things which we need to pray for and think about deeply, but on a much greater and cosmic and universal and global and eternal level, friends, these verses, this passage, these words of Jesus should cause in us a sort of otherworldly confidence and certainty that he who has begun a good work in us 
will carry it through to completion. Therefore, what shall I fear? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, how will he not graciously with him give us all things? It is God who justifies. Who is he to condemn? Jesus, the Son of God, has taken our condemnation on his shoulders, and he justifies. And Paul continues in Romans 8, and he says, What then shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or persecution or distress or famine or nakedness or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So if you're a Christian, lean into the mission and the giving nature, radical giving away, and the power and the certainty of God's kingdom. And if you're not a Christian, can I, can I just ask you, could there be anything more beautiful? Could there be anything more satisfying? Can I just ask you to consider the beauty of this kingdom? And can I ask you to turn away from trusting in your own little kingdom and your own philosophies and to turn and trust in Jesus? Friends, you know, that's how you become a Christian. You turn away from yourself and you turn and trust in Jesus. Entrance into this kingdom is just as clear and as simple as that. Turn away from yourself. Turn away from believing in yourself and look to Jesus And believe in what he did on the cross, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection as a substitute for your sin is the only hope that you have. And then become part of his kingdom, even now. I plead with you to believe that. Believe that. Let's pray. Father, as we now turn our hearts to respond to you, would you help us now think deeply about these things? Lord, for the Christians in this room, would you stir their hearts with affection for Jesus and what it means to live in this kingdom? Would you stir our hearts with confidence to know that we're we're in this irresistible pathway of sanctification and ultimate and final victory? And for my friends in this room who are not yet believers, Lord, would you, would you give them the gift of ears to hear so that they might repent and turn away from trusting in themselves and turn in belief and faith towards Jesus and what he has done. Lord, would you do these things for the display of your glory and the good of your people? Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.